So once again, welcome. Welcome, everyone. Such a delight to see all of you. And it, it really is a delight to see both familiar faces and new faces. And I do want to say, especially if you're new here or relatively new here, I, I want to acknowledge, at least this is what it is for me, it's not always easy to enter into a new space, and even if it's a new Zoom space. And so I, in light of that, I just want to remind all of us, you know, of the, one of the core values here at, in our community, Flagstaff Insight Meditation Community, is really this sense of honoring multiplicity, honoring kind of uh, different perspectives, and that we're coming from often different social locations. And so it's the honoring of difference and honoring also that we come together to often uh, explore similar values. So in light of that, uh, welcome. And tonight I, I will be sharing with you some reflections about, you could say, opening the heart through this, this beautiful quality of the heart, humility. And in, in one of the uh, Buddha's discourses, the Mangala Sutta, he, he calls it one of the the great one of the great blessings that one can have in one's life. And when I slow down with this, it's it's like I'm going to be sharing with you kind of these many facets of this quality of humility, humility like a, a multifaceted jewel. And again, a reminder, I think this is for any evening here at FIMC is please, you know, to use what's useful and leave aside the rest. I, my intention here is just to begin the conversation, not to end the conversation around this quality of humility. So recently, I, th I think the reason I wanted to share with you some reflections on humility is that recently in my formal meditation practice, it, it's, it's interesting, it's, it feels like my heart's been soaking in just the vastness and depth of this path and practice. Some of you might be able to relate to this, like practicing for a while. It's like, wow, there's so much depth and vastness to this exploration that that's here on this path. And it was feeling so moving to my heart. And I was trying to find um, the word for a particular flavor that was kind of interwoven of my heart being moved. And that word that captured at least some of the felt sense was this uh, quality of humility, at least that was the closest I could get to it, was that word. And I was reflecting on an image that could capture some of that quality that was coming through my formal meditation that was expressed somehow through this word humility. And it's, it's kind of like if you were to imagine, let's say you're in, say you're in Flagstaff and you decide to take the long, hike be a really long hike all the way to the grand canyon that's probably take days right i haven't figured it out mathematically so there you are on this super long journey and then let's say just in terms of imagination in the late afternoon or early evening you're getting really close to the edge of the south rim of of the grand canyon and then there's that moment where you're right at the edge, right? And it's been a long day of hiking. Maybe you had to push your limits a bit. bit. 
And there you are at the edge, standing at the edge. And as the sun is setting, right, it, it strikes you the vastness, the beauty, and the mystery of that experience of looking over the Grand Canyon as the sun is setting. And how such an experience, especially for those of you who've been to the Grand Canyon or any place, you know, in nature that has that vastness, how it can so deeply fill your heart. Right? How moving that can be. And there might be a thought, right? There might be a thought, I did it. I just hiked this huge long journey to the Grand Canyon. But that notion, I did it. I just did this long journey, doesn't capture the vastness or the immensity or the mystery of the Grand Canyon. There's something true about it. You did it. But there's something so small about that, don't you think, around something that's so vast. Yes, you did it. And there's something so vast and immense. And to me, that captures humility. It's that realization that, oh, this sense of meanness, it's so small within such a moving experience like the vastness of the Grand Canyon at, this, at, at sunset. So it's this flavor of humility, and, and hopefully you're, you, you can maybe begin to hear how as I'm beginning this, how this notion of humility might be different than other notions of humility that you might be exposed to. And we're going to get into those too, is that this is, this might be quite different. And what I'm proposing is it's the humility that arises when we're in touch with something that is vast and immense, that has great depth to it. It could be the vastness and depth of the present moment the vastness and depth of this path and this practice or any spiritual path and practice. Or maybe the vastness and depth of love or mystery. And maybe you felt that, oh, there is a kind of humility there that is, can be quite inspiring. Or there can be a vastness and humility that's even from a different dimension. It's a dimension that uh, Maya Angelou points to when she speaks about humility. She says, she says, and what humility has done for one is it reminds us that there are people before me. I've already been paid for. And what I need to do is to prepare myself so that I can pay for someone else who has yet to come, but who may be here and needs me. To hear the vastness in this, through this reflection, and what she's pointing to, the vastness and immeasurability that arises from acknowledging that we are here right now because of others. Like when I slow down with that, oh, I'm here because of others. I'm here because of caregivers, friends, family, mentors, teachers. Oh, wow. I'm here because of the earth, the sun, the rain and the moon. Oh, there's a, there's a beautiful kind of humility there. 
And remembering what I mentioned, this, you know, the English word humility comes from hummus, earth. This, I think that's so rich, it could go in so many different directions. It reminds me of this point that Maya Angelou is talking about, the sense of interdependence. And for me, what also helps evoke this sense of humility is just reflecting on how, on how I've come where I have come on the spiritual path. It's in part because of others, many, many other others, all of the practitioners, teachers, who have carried this path forward for 2,600 years. And even, you know, more contemporary teachers, my mentors or teachers that I uh, have gained so much from, or even around this talk, you know, the, the teacher, Rob Berbea, I really appreciated his reflections on humility or Catherine McGee or uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu. I'm here and my practice is here because of others. There's vastness and it situates meanness in a in a an appropriate way. And and hopefully you're hearing, right? Here's this dimension of humility. It's uh it, it allows me not to be confined by the tiny little bubble of me. And this of course I'm not gonna get into this, but in, in a lot of Buddhism, but especially in Theravada Buddhism, this is why there's such an importance placed on opening to the selfless nature of experience because it allows my heart to step out of that that uh, tiny little bubble to not be confined by it i love how john ruskin puts it he says when a person is wrapped up in themselves they make a pretty small package and i love that and for me this is the sense of of humility uh, stepping out of that small package So here we have some of these facets of humility, being moved by something with depth, vastness, immensity, and in a way that leads my heart to not be confined by this teeny little bubble of me. And there's another quality that I think begins to get evoked another facet that can get revealed just as we converse about this in which this is why I wanted to bring up the Grand Canyon is this quality of openness and receptivity. I mean, it is interesting. Like it's, it's like when I'm open and receptive, um, when I'm, when there's a sense of humility, there is more openness and re receptivity and openness and re receptivity in, in, particular ways. One is, is to come back to that quote from Maya Angelou, because I really only spoke to the first part of it. What I uh, start to feel like I get in touch with, when with humility, this openness and receptivity is being open and receptive to it feels like that vastness begins to feel like a calling to me, like it calls my heart in particular ways. Do you remember the quote from Maya Angelou, she says, and what humility is, uh, does for one is it reminds us that there are people before me I have already been paid for. Right? This is what we've gone over, that sense of interdependence. I'm here because of others. And then there's the second sentence. And what I need to do is to prepare myself so that I can pay for someone else who has yet to come, but, but, but may be here and needs me. 
That sounds like a calling to me. A calling to serve, to serve others. What's your calling when there's humility in your heart? Maybe it's to serve. Maybe it's to practice this path. Those might be one and the same for you. Maybe it's to simply behold others or to behold beauty. Of course, the list goes on. And I want to leave you with that question. What calls you when humility arises out of touching that which is vast and immense in your in your life. And this open receptivity that comes from humility, it's not only about that calling, but it also, it feels like it situates me in continuing to be a practitioner on this path with bringing forth this most important quality about practicing, which is learning. I'm still a learner. There's always so much more to learn. This is what I find out about this path and this practice. Often what I find so helpful around challenges is asking myself this one question. What can I learn? What can I learn from this? It's so helpful. And this I can notice, I mean, this has happened recently where my mind's churning. It's it's having a hard time with something. But once I can say, oh, interesting, what can I learn from this? It's like it changes everything into my practice. It's that turn, but I need the humility that, oh, there is something, there's wisdom in this situation. In some ways, it's vaster than me. It has something to teach me. You know, it reminds me when I was uh, getting my uh, degree in counseling in those days, one of the things we learned was uh, called cultural competency or competencies. And I think it was changed luckily to cultural humility, which was so wonderful, right? To this idea that, oh, I'm gonna eventually become competent in how to have cross-cultural conversations or being sensitive to multicultural issues. There's something so inaccurate about that. And what's needed is cultural humility that I'm always willing to learn because there's always gonna be some piece of someone else's life that I don't understand. And then I can open and then I can learn and have more understanding, but I need that stance of cultural humility, being a learner. So what is the, the challenge or the situation for you where you can bring that question? What can I learn from this? Maybe it's the continued challenge around this pandemic, the languishing, the anxiety, the depression. What can I learn from this? I think now to take the, this next step, you could say I'm just turning the jewel a little bit to see another facet of humility is to take some time to uh, examine and reflect on the opposite of humility, which we could say is conceit. And the, you know, the Pali word uh, for, Pali is the early scriptural language of Buddhism. The Pali word for conceit is 
uh, really interesting. It's uh, Nivata or Niwata. And Vata, some of you might know this because it's very similar to um, uh, Sanskrit, is, uh, could be translated as air or wind. I think wind is best here. And Ni is just negates that, so it's without wind. And it literally means that, and usually the translation is, um, it's, it's someone who's not inflated. Not inflated with themselves. And the opposite, right? Somebody who's arrogant would be someone who's inflated with themselves. And this is how we usually understand being conceited, right? It's someone, someone who's conceited is someone who is inflated with themselves, someone who's arrogant, someone who thinks they're so great. Yet this is what I love about Theravada Buddhism is that conceit is, um, uh, includes many more dimensions than that. And this, this Pali word for conceit, mana, it's translated as, as conceit, but also as comparing mind. And I think this definition or this, this phrase comparing mind really gets to some of the activity that's happening underneath conceit and also a broader range of, of conceit. So of course, there's the one I already went over. There's this activity where we're comparing ourselves to others and having a sense of, oh, I'm so much better than everyone else, or I'm so much better than this person or that person. Arrogance. But in Buddhism, mana, this word comparing mind, also includes comparing ourselves to others and having a sense of that I'm so much worse than others, that I'm a horrible person, that I'm no good, that I'm less than everyone else, that I'm less than this person or I'm less than that person. Because I'm still inflated with myself. I'm still inflated, but this time I'm inflated with a self that's constructed and, and conceived around mean being less than, but there's still an inflation. Isn't that interesting? And this is important because some notions of humility get conflated that we should feel like we're less than. But the Buddha is saying, well, that's still conceit when you do that. You're still inflated with yourself. So I want to point out humility is different than that. That's often how humility is talked about, but this is something different. And there's even another dimension that's even more subtle, and it's the act of comparing ourselves to others and having a sense of I am equal to others is still conceit. I'm still inflated with myself. I'm still creating myself. I'm looking at others to create me, to construct me. And the word mana, it's really interesting. It comes from this verb manati, which means um, to, to construct or to fabricate. There's still a fabrication of a self that, that can confine me in some way. So I want to slow down with this act of comparing because it, it, it's, I think it's pretty complex, complex to, to kind of tease this apart a little bit. And I want to just take you through a little bit of a exercise and don't, don't get all like meditative and wise on me. Just like follow me. This is a simple way. Like <laughs> this is something simple here. So we have a bowl here, right? Here's a bowl. And then we have another bowl. 
and then we can compare them. This bowl, we could say is smaller than that bowl, and this bowl, look at it, it's bigger than that bowl, right? This bowl is bigger than this bowl. We're just comparing them. Yeah, I'm, I'm bigger than you, <laughs> right? There's the bigger thing that's happening. But just with another bowl, all of a sudden this bowl is smaller than this bowl, right? Oh, I'm smaller than that bowl. This is what happens with comparing and we begin to, to perceive and get a sense of this bowl dependent upon how we're comparing it. But there's something really profound when I'm just with this bowl, just this. When I behold it on its own terms, there's a, there's a whole vast world there when it's just this bowl. It doesn't have to be bigger or smaller or greater or less than. It's just this bowl. It's no longer confined by comparing. Do you, do you get a sense of that, like how we can release it from comparing and have something vaster, a vaster experience of this? And of course, this happens even if we had two bowls that we could say are equal. When I say they're equal, it can, it can prevent, it can still confine from just seeing this bowl. The reason I want to share that with you is to show that, that the kind of constricting and confining that, that can, pigam, can happen with comparison. You know, this, this monastic, uh, the Venerable Yutadamo, uh, puts it so well. He, he, he says, you know, when I first started as a novice, novice, I thought, I'm a good monk. I'm a great monk. I'm actually better than those other monks. <laughs> and then he said, after the first six months or a year, he thought, well, looking back, I can, I can see now that I, I wasn't a good monk, but now I am a good monk. And then he said, after 10 years of practicing as a monk, he realized, I'm just a monk. And I, I, can you hear that stepping out of comparison into that singularity of, of, of here I am? Something opens up when there's a stepping out of comparing that's confining. This is humility. Often humility it can be seen as an absence. It's an absence of the comparing mind that confines. There's a simplicity that's there. And I want to point out, I want to, I love to complicate things. <laughs> so... <laughs> There is a place for comparing because there's a place for discernment on this path. Sometimes it's helpful to do that, but it, it, what's important is where does it lead to? Does it lead to constructing a particular kind of self that's confining? So for example, Robin, she's my partner. She has a lot more skill in doing concrete work and rock work, rock work and like doing, creating like things like concrete table, tabletops. When we compare each other, she has more skill than I do. This is a really helpful comparison. It makes sense for her to take the lead on those projects 
it is not a good idea for me to. Right? There's something uh, that can be useful for that. There's no need to center a sense of self around this comparison, though. But it can be utilized. Or, for example, it's easier for me to reach things on the top of the shelf of our cabinets than it is for Robin. That's a comparison. It's the next step that is so tricky, right? I mean, I want to be clear. I, you know, I don't want to brag or anything like that. But I do want to point out, it really is so effortless for me to just grab things on the top of the shelf. I mean, it really is. It's like amazing. And I love Robin. She's my partner. But she really does suck at reaching stuff at the top of the shelf. Like she has to go get like a stepping stool. Like it's just like every single time, you know? And and I, I tell her, you know, you, you got to work on this. Like you got to get taller. Like look at me. Like it's just so effortless for me. Like it's just like nothing. Like... I mean, maybe you can do concrete work, but this is what I can do. Like, this is my skill, and it's like effortless for me. I hope you're hearing how ridiculous that is, right? Thinking that one is greater because one can reach something on the top of the shelf and another person has more difficulty, it's kind of ridiculous. But I want to point out, if you slow down with your mind, you might notice how deeply ridiculous your mind is because it's doing the exact same thing. We do it around all kinds of things. And this uh, uh, it leads to another, you can tell my love of all these different Pali words. There's another Pali word, Pali, again, being the early scriptural language of Buddhism that has, uh, that's often connected with this word mana. And it's uh, this Pali word mada. And I just want to give a shout out to, thank you, Maria Heim for pointing this out. And mada, uh, you could say that word translates into intoxication. So it's like there's a comparing, but then the mind gets intoxicated with it and creates a confining sense of self or a confining self, self, uh, sense of another person. There's a drunkenness that happens around the comparing. Right? There's a place to see comparisons. But when my mind gets intoxicated with it, it creates a rigid sense of self in terms of me and creates a rigid senses of other people. It's confining, constricting, and downright harmful at times. So I, I just want to acknowledge there's a whole range of harm that happens when we get intoxicated with comparing. When you just think about this just in terms of collectively of how the the mind has gotten drunken on this on you know kind of societal dimensions, it's like right, our, our mind can recognize differences in skin color or body size and shape. It can recognize differences in age, ability. It recognizes differences in views. And then it takes the next step. It gets intoxicated with creating ourselves and others based on better than, 
less than equal to. It's so different just to behold each other as just this, or I'm just a monk. It's a radically different world. This is important for our own lives and for the lives of others. And yeah, I wanna point out, it can get tricky. Like, it's important to have a sense of difference at times. You know, Ella Baker, Martin Luther King, they were much more deeply involved in the selfless work of bringing equal rights into this country for everyone than I am. There's no comparison almost, the difference in terms of that. And yeah, when sometimes we have such luminaries, there can be an intoxication that I'm no good. That's how we can get lost in a kind of comparing. And then we lose, we lose the importance of being inspired to be inspired by others who have these beautiful quality of heart, qualities of heart. This is what you find kind of in the kind of the, the Buddhas during the Buddhist time in the monastic community. There were monastics that were really skilled in concentration or samadhi and others in psychic powers and others in memorizing excellent memory for the Buddhist teachings or the memory around the monastic guidelines. And there was a, a way of celebrating all of these different qualities and different people and and a community not getting intoxicated by the comparing. I also wanna point out, cause I think this is another thing that sometimes gets confusing about humility is that in Buddhism, right? There's a wanting to become free of the comparing mind so that we don't get confined by a narrow sense of self and what makes it complex is that there's also a valuing of self-appreciation. There's like particular practices that, that are done to appreciate the small acts of generosity that you might engage in or the acts of kindness. Appreciating ourselves for our ethical integrity, appreciating ourselves for our practice of compassion and kindness and appreciative joy and equanimity to really love ourselves. So this isn't about like self-negation or even forgetting about ourselves. There's a place to love ourselves, but it's not being confined in the little box of ourselves. So thank you. Thank you for your attention. What we'll do now is let's take one minute just to stretch and move with the body. And then I'm gonna be inviting you to incorporate just a little bit of this in the meditation to lead us in with this quality a little bit. So let's just take a minute and come back uh, and then we'll begin to meditate together. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.